I want to invite you this morning to, to go with me in your Bible to the book of Esther. And if, uh, I want to speak this morning on the subject of God's sovereignty, kind of the theme that runs through this book. If you've not been here for the last few weeks and are not familiar with this story, I want to just take a couple of minutes just for a quick review. And if this is uh, uh, just, you already know all this, and I'll be through with this part in just a minute. We'll get to our text this morning in chapter 5. The story takes place in Persia. God's people, because of their sins, are living in exile. It's not where they were supposed to be. Five characters, King Ahasuerus, powerful, wealthy, self-centered, narcissistic guy who's prone to drinking too much alcohol and making pretty poor decisions. Then there's Queen Vashti, evidently a strong-willed woman, independent thinker. We don't know much about her. The story has a like all good stories do, an evil villain named Haman. He's a snake. He's got a snake in the grass. And then there's two characters, Mordecai and Esther. Mordecai is a decent, honest Jewish man, and he has a younger cousin by the name of Esther. The Bible says when Esther was very young, her, she lost her parents. Mordecai took her in, raised her, and loved her as his own. When this story takes place, Esther is all grown up, and the Bible says that she develops into a very beautiful woman. And so here's the narrative. And if you have your Bibles, go with me to chapter one. I'm just going to point out some things. We're going to quickly go through four chapters. The narrative is in chapter one, the king likes to party. He likes to party, likes to have a good time. And in a state of intoxication, he makes a request of his queen, Vashti, and she refuses his request. He is so enraged at her, he follows the ridiculous advice of his crony advisors, and he agrees to remove the queen from her position and then to find her replacement. And the methodology they adopt to find her replacement is to have a Persian beauty contest. In chapter 2, all of the... See, went through that chapter just like that. I think, why can't you do that all the time with all the chapters? Chapter 2. All of the finest young virgin women within the Persian Empire are sought and brought to the king's palace. There is a special beauty pageant consultant who is secured and oversees each individual contestant's care. And at the end of 12 months, after each young, beautiful virgin woman, after she goes through her skin care and her fashion care, the beauty pageant begins, which consists of only one phase of competition. Each of the individual contestants must spend an entire night with the king. And the young woman who makes the best impression on her one-night stand with the king wins the pageant and is awarded the prize being named the next queen of Persia. Esther wins. Begins living as queen in the palace. Chapter 3. The villain enters the narrative. This villain named Haman receives a promotion second in power only to King Ahasuerus. And with the promotion, all of the residents in the Persian Empire are required by law 
that whenever he passes, they are to bow in his presence and pay homage to the king or to Haman to sing his praise. There is a single kind of nobody Jewish guy named Mordecai and he refuses to bow to Haman. He refuses to offer any praise to Haman. And it's really not that big a deal, is it? And of all the residents, thousands upon thousands of people in Shushan and throughout the Persian Empire, everybody bows to Haman, everybody sings his praises except one lone little Jewish guy. It's really not that big a deal, except there's always a couple of troublemakers and they report Mordecai's rebellion to Haman and you, you know, you, you just are left scratching your head. Why is it that there are just those people in life who enjoy stirring the pot, creating problems? You know anybody like that? Haman, being the self-centered narcissist that he is, is so infuriated and so enraged that he decides not only to execute Mordecai for his rebellious act, but that's not enough. In chapter 3, verse 6, Haman decides to destroy every Jew in the Persian Empire. And he devises the plan, sells it to the king, and the king bites, goes along with it. And then in chapter 3, verses 13, 14, and 15, those verses, the notice is sent out. It becomes law. All of the Jews, 11 months from that date, they have 11 months to get their affairs in order because at the end of the year, on the 13th day, the day before they celebrate God's deliverance and the Passover, the Bible is very specific. It uses three words. Every Jew will be killed, annihilated, and destroyed, to make it clear. All of them, young and old, women and children, all of them will be slaughtered in one day, and everything they own will be plundered by those who take their lives. This order becomes law, and the genocide is set. And these two knuckleheads, King Ahasuerus and Haman, kick back in the palace and share drinks with the city and the entire empire in a state of perplexity and panic. And so here's the main question before we look to chapter 4 and 5. Where is God? The story of Esther is the only book in the Bible that never mentions God, which I think makes the point of the entire story. It is of God's sovereignty, of his providence. Are any of you... Don't raise your hand. It'll discourage me. But are any of you tired of hearing about God's providence? I'd like for you to help me out a little bit. Here's your pop quiz this morning. And if you don't answer this correctly, you fail the quiz. You don't pass go. No $200. <laughs> providence. Do you remember? Here's the quiz. Pro means what? Ahead of or before. Ventia means to, to see. And so... Biblically, as followers of Christ, faith in God, the lesson is God, when we talk about his providence, that means God sees, he sees ahead 
of us. He sees before us. Nothing takes God by surprise. And he sees to us. Now, I'm going to tell you why that's so important that we get that down. And you, you know, like these little kids, they learn through repetition. Some of us like big kids. We just got to keep learning through repetition. But this is why this is so important. I've not got tired of preaching this, studying about this, reading, thinking about God's providence. Because I need to be reminded every day of my life and every circumstance of my life of God's providence. That whatever I encounter, whatever I experience today or tomorrow, I rest with confidence that God is ahead of me. He is working out in front of me. He sees it. He's aware of it. And he's going to see to me. He's going to take care of me. And he'll do the same for you. That is why this issue of providence is so important. Throughout the entire Persian Empire, God's people are thrown into this state of panic. They're perplexed, the Bible says, living in pain and fear. But God, in his providence, is mysteriously at work. He is not surprised, not caught off guard. God is not in heaven looking down upon his creation as if he's removed, wringing his hands in anxiety. But yet he is in control, working to fulfill his plans and his purposes. You and I need to hear that over and over and over because it is where our faith rests. We trust in God. And as we were reminded of in a great way through that song, that when we don't see God, when we don't hear God, when we don't understand God, he's still God, he still loves us, and he's still working all things together for our good. few of you have asked me recently, I was thinking about this, how long do you think you'll be here at Hillcrest as pastor of our church before you retire? And there's been a few people have asked me that question, and I've just kind of thought that people were asking me that question because they didn't want me to leave. And the more I started thinking about that, I kind of wondered if they were asking it the other way, wondering how long it would be before I was gone. <laughs> but, but the fact of the matter is, I don't know the answer to that question. The Bible says many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it's the purposes of God that will be established. And so I might plan a date and set a date or an age, but there's a lot of other things that go into and to play on that. So the reality is I don't know the answer to that question, but God in his providence knows. And he sees, and by faith, I'm going to live with confidence that he's going to see to me and to Mindy and to our family. And God in his providence is going to see to you and to your family and to us as a church family and our shared ministry together. David in the Psalms, a few occasions, refers to God as my strong and high tower. What is a high tower? A high tower, if you climb up a high, you see those water towers around, they got little ladders, and sometimes you'll see the graffiti sprayed on those water towers. And I always think to myself, what idiot climbs up that thing and gets out there and leans over and sprays on those things? But, you know, from that position, that tower, you have a perspective from that position that you don't have down here. And so that's what David is trying to convey. My God is my high tower in his providence. He sees what I don't see, and he sees faithful to see to me. What concerns do you have this morning? 
When you think about tomorrow and your future or the future of your family, what is it that you're concerned about? What is it that you fear for your kids? Or what creates uncertainty? What is it that you're unsure of? And I want to encourage you this morning that the unseen God in the story of Esther in his providence is ahead of you. He is working to provide for you, to care for you, and he is faithful and God is good. Chapter 4, Mordecai, upon hearing this news, the Bible says he's grieved, he begins to fast, he tears his clothes, puts on sackcloth, covers his face with ash, and he mourns. And in verse 1 of chapter 4, he cries out with a bitter cry. And Queen Esther, with some reluctance, with great hesitancy and fear, to Mordecai's request, she finally decides to stand up to the king, to do the right thing, to leverage her position as the new queen, and to plead her case. Mordecai chapter 4 verse 14 says to her, yet, yet, or it could mean it's not apparent yet, but who knows, Esther, whether you've come into the kingdom for such a time as this. And Esther responds and agrees to step up to the plate to do the right thing and to go into the presence of the king and to plead her case and the case for God's people. Read with me chapter 5, our text for today. Now it happened on the third day that Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace across from the king's house while the king sat on his royal throne in the royal house facing the entrance of the house. So it was when the king saw, don't overlook that little verb there, so when the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court that she found favor in what he saw, in his sight. And the king held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand, and Esther went near and touched the top of the scepter. And the king said to her, Esther, what do you wish? Queen Esther, what is your request? It shall be given to you up to half the kingdom. So Esther answered, if it pleases the king, let the king and Haman come today to the banquet, to the feast that I have prepared for him. The king said, bring Haman quickly that we may do as Esther has said. So the king and Haman went to the feast, the banquet that Esther had prepared at the banquet of wine, remember, he, he, likes, he likes his alcohol. At the banquet of wine, the king said to Esther, what is your petition? It shall be granted you. What is your request? Up to half the kingdom it shall be done. Then Esther answered and said, my petition and request is this. If I have found favor in the sight of the king, and if it pleases the king to grant my petition and to fulfill my request, then let the king and Haman come to the banquet, the feast, which I will prepare for them, and tomorrow I will do as the king has said. <laughs> so Haman went out that day joyful and with a glad heart. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate and that he did not stand or tremble before him, he was filled with indignation against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home, and he sent and called for his friends and his wife Zeresh. Then Haman told them of his great riches, and he told them the multitude of his children, everything in which the king had promoted him and how he had advanced him above the officials and the servants of the king. 
Moreover, Haman said, besides Queen Esther invited, besides Queen Esther invited no one but me to come in with the king to the banquet that she prepared. And tomorrow I am again invited by her along with the king. Yet all this avails me nothing. Haman says that, verse 13. Yet all this is worth nothing so long as I see Mordecai, the Jew, sitting at the king's gate. Then his wife Zeresh and all his friends said to him, Let a gallows be made 50 cubits high, and in the morning suggest to the king that Mordecai be hanged on it. Then go merrily with the king to the banquet. And the thing pleased Haman, so he had the gallows made. Now, the, the best part of the story is next week. So you got to come back I, I, So for, for that part. Let's just go through chapter 5. Um, God, sovereign, in his providence, seeing ahead, working. I, I had a, just a, little, just a little sidebar. You know, last couple months, we have been serving family after family after family here. Um, most of you don't even know this, how God is working in this way, but helping families with food and clothing. There's a lot of struggling folks here, and they've been coming here. And so we've been serving and serving, serving. Two weeks ago, I think we had 90, I heard different, 90 to 97 families come through here for some additional food. Ran out of food, ran up, patting some ladies, ran up, got some more. And reason I'm telling you that is over the last couple of months with the benevolence assistance we've been providing and food and things, we have no more money in the benevolence fund and, nor the food fund. In fact, we've been allocating some of the mission fund money to the food pantry to continue to buy food and sustain that. And so, so why, why are you telling us that? Well, this week I got a phone call by our mayor and he said, can I come by the office? And I said, sure. So uh, Tim Kent came by and he shared a story uh, that there's a guy somewhere here in the community, he's unchurched, wants to stay anonymous. He said, but he wanted to do something. And so he came to the office and gave me some money. And he said, just I want you to do something with this mayor to help some folks. So Tim got his permission. The guy said agreed. And so Tim brought up and gave it here to the church. And he gave me, handed me three stacks uh, of bills. They were wrapped, 20, 20 $100 bills in each stack which was $6,000, and so we took $3,000 and put it in the food pantry and fund, and then we put $3,000 in benevolence fund, and my point is that is not a coincidence. That God, in his providence, sees ahead, sees two, and he provides, he cares. A little example. Uh, how many of you believe in coincidences? You know, different opinions on that. C.S. Lewis once wrote, coincidences are God's way of remaining anonymous. In Esther's story, God remains unseen, unheard. He is never mentioned. His name is never acknowledged. However, in his providence, God is at work. At the end of chapter 4, Esther is resolved finally to go to the king. She says, I'll do it. And if I perish, I perish but I'm going to do it. I, I need to do what I know I need to do. She understands what's at stake and knows the risk. Because the king's law had been set. This is, this is kind of interesting law for an individual to have. And it, 
basically is, if anybody comes into my presence and bothers me or troubles me or annoys me or shares any news that I don't want to hear, that person's going to be eliminated. <laughs> what kind of fantasy life would that be? Uh, the only exception is if I take my staff, my golden scepter, and I point it towards the person, and if I point it towards them, then they have permission, they can come in, and that's the only exception. The main point of the emphasis going into chapter 5 is Esther has finally resolved to step up, to take action, and to do what is right. And the idea is, rather than sitting back, hoping that God will do something, she sees the need, it's real, it's serious. She, along with her people, are about to die in 11 months. The law has already gone forth. And she recognizes, I need to do something. And with that in mind, some of you need to step up and do something for God. Sitting back, passive, and you need to step up and do the right thing and do those things that you know God would want you to do and do some things that help strengthen the church, the body of Christ, and give God your very best. I want you to consider this morning as we go through the text, three things. The first is Esther's subtlety. Esther's subtlety. Esther is not a bull in a china shop. She is wise and skillful and methodical and resolved, but subtle, very subtle. She begins with fasting, and it's not mentioned, but in the Old Testament, fasting among God's people is always associated with prayer. That is the only least little reference to God at all in this story, but she begins with fasting. She fasts, she recruits her friends, others around her to join with her in the fast, invites Mordecai to fast, and the Jews in the empire begin to fast, which means she is devoting time to be alone with the Father, with God, to focus and to develop her approach. And so in her subtlety, she develops a plan, and she begins with her wardrobe Definitely a special occasion to go before the king. Clothes matter. You remember earlier in chapter 2, verse 13, each woman, after she went through her 12 months of beauty preparation, she was allowed to select clothing, what she was going to put on before she went into the king's presence. And then in verse 15 of chapter 2, when it's Esther's turn to go before the king, she goes to Haggai, the fashion consultant, and says, hey, help me figure out what to wear. Clothes matter. It, it kind of makes me curious when she went to this fashion consultant, Haggai. Uh, and I just wondered, did she do that again? When she thought about going into the king's presence, did she go back to him? And then she, she, she say to he guys, she did she say, do I need to wear this robe or do I need to wear this robe? And he says, wear that one. And did she say, what about this, the, the red one or the black one? And he says, oh, definitely the black. Do I, do I wear the heels, the high heels, the pumps, the flats? Oh, definitely the high heels. <laughs> hey, guy, you know, stay with the heels. Esther is subtle. 
She's clever. She prepares. She's methodical. She establishes a fasting network. She understands that clothes matter. She wants to look good, to leverage everything that God has given her, which included her beauty, her personality, her position as queen, and the aim of her subtlety was to look simply irresistible to the king. And I want you to note a little detail in chapter 4, verse 11. It says that she had not been in the king's presence for 30 days. Wink, wink. 30 days. So her clothes, her heels, her hair, her makeup, it all matters. Then the subtlety of her demeanor. I don't know what, verse 1, I don't know what the exact architecture of the king's palace was, but it says that Esther stood across from the king's house facing his entry. So maybe there was a, this large doorway that provided sight line into the palace, and so she stands across from that. Look at verse 2. It says, the king saw her standing outside, and she found favor in what he saw in his sight. You say, well, how did that work? So you think about, we don't know how far away it was, but she knows she's going to be in his sight line. And she dresses up, and I just can imagine her appearance and her dress and the color and the heels. And she stands outside the sight line. How do you think she stood? I think there was a stance, you know. The Jim Carrey thing, I don't know. She's going to be in his sight line. 30 days have passed. She has a look about her, and hey, I, I still know about that kind of stuff. And her scheme works. Verse 2 says the king sees her, likes what he sees, and holds out the golden scepter. And Esther proceeds very humbly, walking maybe through those heels, through that palace, those heels clicking across that floor. And when she gets there, she humbles herself and she touches the top of the golden scepter while the king is motioning, come on, come on. She draws near. Then her subtlety includes food. <laughs> she prearranges a dinner, a feast, just a small intimate setting. Unlike the other parties, this is not a large Persian party. This is just a small intimate setting. And in verse 3, she asks the king, what can I do for you? And the king responds to her and he says, what's your request? Up to half of the kingdom. In other words, he's not literally going to give her half of the Persian empire. It's just kind of making the idea he's smitten and he's saying to her, baby, sky's the limit. What can I do for you? And in fact, she, the king asks her this three times. In chapter 5, verse 3, we read it. What is your request? What is it that I can do for you up to half of the kingdom? And then he says, he makes that request to her again. Chapter 5, verse 6. Hester, what is your request? What is, what is it up to half of my kingdom? And then finally over, and we'll see this next week, in chapter 7, verse 2, he says it again. The third time. When I started reading this, it made me wonder why, why? When Esther is asked, what can I do for you? Up to half of my kingdom, the sky's the limit. She doesn't answer. She doesn't tell them what she wants. 
Instead, what she says in both instances is, I've prepared a meal for you. In fact, she prepared two meals. So it kind of goes like this. Hey, Esther, you're looking pretty nice. Is there anything you need? Anything I can do for you? Oh, baby, no, I was just thinking about you, and I thought I would do something nice for you. And if it would please you, I wanted to invite you and your buddy to come into this feast, this special dinner that I've made for you tonight. And I actually asked the kitchen department here in the palace to prepare your favorite. They're going to grill some aged sirloin and season that with garlic butter. And they're going to provide these special steak fries, cover this cheese and bacon with your favorite ranch and horseradish sauce and fresh salads with all the fixings and several varieties of cheesecake. And would that be okay? I just, I just wanted to do something nice for you. Do you think that if actually that you could even fit Haman into the, our schedule? <laughs> Her subtly works. It's all there. You just, you just got to read it. And her subtly works in verse 5. The king's pretty motivated. He says, somebody go get Haman quickly. And they attend the dinner. And at the end of the evening, they are sitting there by the fire. And the Bible says they're sipping on drinks. Esther is subtle. She is further endearing herself to him. She looks great. She smells nice. She prepares his favorite meal and invites that guy, that annoying friend. But her subtlety is successful. In verse 6, she, he asks her the second time, Esther, what can I do for you up to half of my kingdom? What's your request? And she says, I, I've, I've prepared another meal. Can we do this again tomorrow night? It's so wonderful. She's good. I mean, Esther is really good. Honoring him along with his obnoxious friend and the suspense of the story begins to grow. Now, we'll remember something. Esther is preparing to make a big ask. It's no small matter. She's about to ask him to go against his own word, his own law, to go back on an order. And he runs the risk of being embarrassed. The possibility of him losing face in the empire as king is serious. But she's subtle. And she prepares a fast and prays and gets herself dressed fine, clothes matter, prepares this food. She is humble, uses her best, her best voice. I can just hear it. And in her subtlety, Esther is setting the king up, which includes Haman. So let's move from Esther's subtlety to Haman's stupidity. He is self-centered. He's a narcissist. He's an egomaniac. Haman is the embodiment of a fool. The story provides a great trance, a contrast between the haughtiness of Haman and the humility of Esther. He's the villain. He's the jerk in the story. After attending the first, first dinner in verse 9, it's, the Bible says that he begins... He's joyful. He has a glad heart. He's just had a private meal with the king of the Persian Empire and Queen Esther, and he's feeling good about things, feeling good about himself. He's kind of cocky. Life is good. And he goes home thinking, what a great day. However, on his way home, he's about to understand to his shame and eventually to his death is the realization of the absolute stupidity of living a life full of coveting stuff. 
of living for the newer, the newest, the bigger, the better, the finer, because when the final inventory is conducted, it'll be the same old story. Same old story. Jesus said of such fools, when the night comes and your soul is required of you, then who will receive all of this stuff that you've labored for? For God says, whenever a person lays up treasure for themselves, that person is not really rich at all. For if the person fails to lay up treasure in heaven, he or she is a fool. Haman is joyful. He's glad. He's cocky. It's been a great day. But then look at verse 9. But, but, here we go. Here it is again, that negative conjunction, but. And it's not but God, but this time it's but Haman. He's doing great in life. He's happy. He's joyful. And when he sees Mordecai, everything changes. He remembers that one little Jewish guy that nobody out there doesn't tremble before me. He's not in awe of me, offers me no praise. He doesn't bow. Haman's fly in the ointment. His Mordecai doesn't like me. And it eats in him up. Isn't it illogical that all of Haman's prestige and all of his power and his position prevent him from being content? Why does it matter? Why does it matter what Mordecai does? Verse 9, he's filled with wrath. He's bitter, consumed with anger. It's the stupidity of pride. It's what pride always does. I'm sure you've heard of the seven deadly sins. Lust, gluttony, greed, sloth, wrath, and envy, but the king of all sins is pride. It's the sin that leads to all other sins. Because if we become prideful, full of ourselves, thinking too highly of ourselves, what happens? Then nobody else can satisfy me. Nobody else can please me. No one else is as smart as I am. No one else can do anything right but me. Pride inflates me and disregards everyone else and especially God. And it results in thinking, I can do whatever I want. Jeremiah chapter 9, there's a verse that says this, the person who boasts in themselves is the person that does not know nor understand God. What's the cure for pride? It's what you see in the life of Jesus, the antidote to pride. It's humility, which always de-emphasizes self and brings forth sacrificial service to other people. Haman's stupid pride robbed him from being able to relax and enjoy life. He's never satisfied with what he has. He's never content. You remember what Paul said about contentment? He said, godliness with contentment is great gain. He figured it out. I've learned something about being content. There's a secret. How did you learn that, Paul? Well, he said, I've learned it through poverty I know what it's like to be abased. I've learned it through wealth and influence. I know what it's like to abound. And God has shown me that whatever state that I am, I've discovered contentment to rely upon God and his providence. 
that he sees ahead and he's always going to see to me. Secret of contentment. Someone said pride and contentment cannot sleep in the same bed. I want to ask yourself why. Why was Haman so obsessed with Mordecai? I mean, who cares, right? Haman is running with the big dogs. He's rich, he's powerful, he's hanging out with the king of Persia and the queen. He's famous, he's attending all the red carpet events. When he goes home, though, it doesn't look like there's anybody there. No one's there to greet him. When he gets home, he has to send for his family and his friends, and once he does, he gathers people together to listen to him, to talk about himself. That's what he does in that verse. He says he shows them all of the stuff he has. And show, his wife, Zara, she actually has him come, and he begins to show off all of his kids, like as if Zeresh don't know who their kids are. He begins to brag, touting his own importance. I'm more and more intrigued when around people who talk about themselves nonstop or who feel a need to post all of their pictures and all of their business on Facebook as if anybody really cares. Haman would be on entertainment tonight. He'd be on the front pages making all the headlines. He's running with all the famous people, with other people who are full of themselves as well, most of whom have really never accomplished anything in life nor contributed anything that's of real value. Listen, personally, I don't care about the Kardashians. I don't care about their hair, their makeup, their clothes. I don't care when a movie person says, if this person, my political candidate, is not elected, then I'm going to move my citizenship to Europe. Bye-bye. Go. I don't care. <laughs> Why? Why do we admire these kinds of people who've never really, they don't really do contribute anything of great value worth to culture? Why do they become our heroes? Why do we idolize the Kardashians? Why don't we idolize teachers and mothers and first responders and medical professionals who contribute, who make a difference in the culture, in life? It makes no logical sense to me that we idolize the Haman types. Are you susceptible to pride? That's the question. Are you susceptible to pride? And let me give you the answer. You are. Is it possible that you and I are blind to see it? Oh, yeah, we are. From the text, you see Esther's subtlety. You see Haman's stupidity. But you also see God's sovereignty. God is sovereign. Think about all the characters. Vashti, King Ahasuerus. Mordecai, Esther, Haman. All of them are individual people. And as you read through this story, what do you see? You see each one of those people, just like you and me, making choices and decisions every day about life. You make choices. I make decisions. All of us do that together. These characters in the story illustrate they're not robots. All of their decisions, all of their choices not, are not pre-programmed by a sovereign God. And they make some good choices, and there's some definite bad choices made in this story. 
There are some sinful choices in the story. And what do we know about God? It is contrary to God's nature to sin. It is God's contrary. James 1 says God never tempts any person to make a sinful choice. Not God. He may test us, but God does not sin, nor does he tempt any person to sin. And somehow, some way, through all of those individual choices and individual sins, some good, some not good, some righteous, some sinful, somehow God knows about all of those decisions, all of those choices, all of those outcomes in advance. He allows things to occur. occur. Sometimes he intervenes and prevents things from occurring. Sometimes he stays back and allows things to occur in his providence, in his sovereignty. And there is a mystery to it. There is a mystery to God and his providence, his divine providence and human responsibility, and somehow God mysteriously still works through it all to achieve his purposes and his plans for his glory. You cannot deny, though, if you read through this story, that all of these things are coincidental. There's some kind of a thread that God is working through all of this. Can you explain, do you have answers for why everything has happened in your life? Listen, I'm always a little suspicious of preachers and Bible teachers and guys who write books when they understand God and they can explain all of God's actions and every verse in the Bible, they've got God in a box, can understand him and how they know all of that and how they have answers to everything that happens in life. I'm more than just leery of them. I don't... I can't explain. I don't understand why my wife's dad died when she was 15 years old, a righteous, godly man. I don't have an answer. I can't explain to you why our youngest daughter was diagnosed with cancer. I don't have answers to all of that. I'm sure you have some similar questions and some similar mysteries that have occurred in your life, some of them very painful. But God, in his sovereignty and his providence, knows it all in advance. And we have, are left sometimes wondering, why did he allow it? Why didn't he intervene? Why did he not prevent it and stop this? And when other times, he does. I, I think about the, the, in, in Acts chapter 12, when Herod, for political purposes, arrested James. And the church began to pray. And James was beheaded. And it brought Herod such political stature and standing that he then went further and arrested Peter and the church just like they did for James. They began to pray and intercede for Peter, but God delivered Peter and not James. Why is that? I don't know. But God in his mystery and his providence is working for his purposes. I can tell you what I do know. That Paul, and I can relate to this, said to the Corinthians, he said life some aspects of life are like looking through dark glass. And we don't see very well. We don't really see clearly everything. But with all of life's questions, with all of its 
things that have happened without clear answers, I know this, that God has been faithful. And he's been proven himself to be true to his word, and he's been good. And, and I, I can tell you this, it's, uh, there are many people today who are struggling with God's sovereignty because they're angry at God. God, if you're good, if you're sovereign, if you know everything in advance, why did you allow this thing to happen? And they're angry. And they've not settled. In spite of my questions, in spite of my pain, and my suffering and loss, God is still still sovereign. You remember what God said to Job when Job was going through pain, he was questioning God. God gently comes to him and says, Job, I'm paraphrasing, Job, who do you think you are? Where were you when I created the foundations of the earth? Where were you when I set the planets in position? And Job comes to a place where he trusts in God. He still worships and rests in the Lord. I'm going to ask Don and the worship team to come this morning. How many of you, as we think about, as we close here this morning, how many of you would stand with me, not just because we normally have you stand during the invitation, but how many of you would stand with me right now without any hesitancy to declare, God, you have been faithful and you have been good to me? You have been faithful. God, you have been good.